Good morning, church. Good morning. Great to see you this morning. Come on in and find a seat. And we'll begin our worship. So we're uh, glad to have you here. Lord, um, the reason that we're here, hopefully the reason that you came was that this is a time when we gather together as a community. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And our purpose is to kind of brag on God, to tell each other through song and in words what God means to us, what he is, uh, what he's done, and the difference that he makes in our life. So hope you're ready to do that. We're going to start doing that by singing and by standing and singing a song that's a favorite of Mr. Chuck Bodie and Josie, and there's a lot of other people that love this song everywhere I go. So let's sing and praise the Lord with this song. Thank you. 
You may be seated. I'm just saying right, that I won't be afraid that this my hope, come what may, everywhere I go, I, I go with you. And we get to celebrate that together this morning, that wherever we go, no matter what life brings to us, we are with God, and because of that we can have hope. And it's a great hope for us to have. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning. If you are visiting and you want to let us know about yourself at all, there's a Connect card in the seat in front of you. You can fill that out. You can drop it in the boxes on the, on the back wall on your way out. Those boxes are also where um, tithes and offering can be placed on your way out this morning. A couple of announcements to, to make you aware of. Oh, one is that following the service today, we will have our, our Sunday school hour. And so over in the library, we'll have a, a parenting class that people in all stages of parenting are welcome to join and be part of that discussion. Over in the library wing, Bill Miller is going to lead a, a time of prayer for us during that time. And then downstairs, there'll be uh, Sunday school for children of all ages and youth. Speaking of our youth, several of them are, are on a trip right now to the district's youth conference, so I encourage you to be in prayer for them. And so with that in mind, let's, let's go to God in, in prayer this morning. Father, we praise you, we thank you for this chance to gather and come together and to, as a body, marvel at your amazing work to stand in awe of all that you have done in creating this universe and in making each one of us and in guiding each one of our lives to this place and to marvel at the work you've done for us in Jesus. Father, we pray that as we sing songs this morning, as we hear your word this morning, as we fellowship together this morning, as we sit in classes and learn this morning, all that takes place here would serve to bring you honor, bring you glory, bring you praise. That it would serve to work in our heart to conform us more and more to the image of your Son so that we can go from here and be able to advance your kingdom in three lakes and throughout our region and throughout the world. Father, would all that takes place here today serve to bring you glory and to see your kingdom advance as we go out from here. Father, we do pray for Pastor Ian and the youth that are at their conference this weekend. Pray that you would give them safe travels. You would be at work in the lives of the youth that are gathered in Green Bay to work powerfully to raise up young men and women who desire to see you made much of would draw young men and women to yourself through that conference and you would 
see your kingdom advance through that conference. Father, now I just pray that you would calm our heart, calm our mind, that we'd be able to put aside anything fighting to distract us from worshiping you this morning. We can come before you, we can sing, we can hear your word, so we can glorify you. We pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. As hopefully you know, the uh, Pastor Tim has shared with us a reading plan that he's using to read through the Bible this year. It's, uh, he shared that at Christmas Eve service, and I hope that you've uh, been interested in that. And I wanted to give a plug for that this morning. And the reason is because I am a huge fan of the Bible Project, and that's who did this plan. I listen to their podcasts on treadmills at the gym every week, and it's actually revolutionized the way I read and understand the Bible. But this, this uh, plan is nice. It's, it's part of the Version Bible app on your phone or computer, and you just click buttons, and the, it starts with a video, a Bible Project video, that provides some of the context, the, both the cultural context and the biblical context, and sets up the readings, and you just press buttons. It goes from the video to the next chapter that you read, and it keeps track of what you've done and what you haven't done. It's, it's really, really good. So to try to help you catch the vision for that, we're going to watch a video from last Sunday. And before we go to that, I just, last week, I gave a little tutorial to the folks who were cross-training about how to access that. It's really quite simple, but it does help to watch somebody and actually get your phone out and get it going. So anybody that wants to have a tutorial on that reading plan, meet me up here after church. So Al, if you'd roll that video as a way to help you understand what it's like. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the god. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Well, let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. 
gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But... Just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, so maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So... Practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So let's stand together and let's worship this God.
Father, we praise you that you are good. And even when life is hard, even when we face trials and difficulties, you are good. May you give us breath that we can sing of your goodness together. Father, help us to rejoice in your goodness this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So you're, you're likely familiar with, with the expression, right? That someone who can't see the forest for the trees. Right? Which is, it's, it's used to describe right, someone who gets so lost in, in the details of a topic that they fail to see the, the big picture of what is going on. There's a, there's a joke that I like that kind of illustrates this idea. It goes like this. It's about Sherlock Holmes and, and Dr. Watson. And one time they, they decide to go camping. And so after dinner one night, they, they go to bed and then they go to sleep. And in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, Sherlock Holmes kind of nudges Watson awake and he says, Watson. Look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson replies, I see millions of stars. And what does that tell you? Holmes asked. So Watson ponders for a minute, and then he says, Well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I can tell that the time is about quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. And meteorologically, I can suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Then Watson says, why, Holmes? What does it tell you? And Holmes was silent for a minute, then he replied, Watson, it tells me someone stole our tent. So, so Watson, right, he missed the forest for the trees. He was so wrapped up in the details of what the stars were telling him, he missed the big picture. I don't know if you're, you're prone to being like that in, in your own life. Right? Some people are, are just inclined to be very detail-oriented, while others are, are better at zooming out and seeing the big picture, but maybe aren't as good at seeing all the small details. One thing I, I do know is that as Christians in general, we've often been very guilty over the years of missing the forest for the trees when it comes to passages in the Bible that talk about the end times. Right? We talk about Jesus' second coming and the end of all human history. Like we miss the forest for the trees. We get so wrapped up in the details, we miss the big picture. And today in Luke chapter 21, we come to one of those passages where it's very, very easy to get locked in on, on the trees and miss the, the, the big picture, to miss the forest. Right? It's, I know it's really easy to do that because like, I spent much of this week in my sermon prep time trying to figure out what each individual tree was telling us. But I was struggling Right, to put all those details into a coherent sermon that would, would be meaningful for each of us as we, as we left here 
and went about our day-to-day lives throughout the rest of this week. So you might notice, right, in your, in your sermon notes section of your bulletin, where I, I usually have an outline, like, there is no outline there. And part of the reason for that is because, like, on Thursday morning when I try to have the outline done so Lori can print the bulletins and, like, have them ready to go, I had no idea what the outline was going to be. Like, I just was so lost in the details, I had no idea, like, what the outline was going to be. But then as I was wrestling with trying to put together an outline, I kind of came to a realization, right? God kind of smacked me upside the head and said, hey, dummy, like, like stop getting so bogged down in the details and, and see the main point. And so you see what I think is the main point in, on your sermon note page in your bulletin this morning. Right? The main point is simply that redemption is coming. Jesus will return. God will one day set all things right and make all things new and undo all wrongs. No matter how hard things may be in this life. Luke wants us to know this so that we can, we can cling to the hope that redemption is coming. Jesus puts it this way in verse 28 of our passage. We'll read in a little bit, but he says this. He says, stand up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And that's the point, right? You can stand tall. You can stand with your head lifted high. In the midst of all of life's trials and difficulties and attempts to beat you down, you can stand tall because you know that redemption is coming. That's what this passage ultimately is trying to tell us. So here's what I want to do this morning. Instead of kind of going through an outline like I typically do, I want to just kind of walk through this passage together with you. We'll spend a little bit of time looking at the trees, and we'll look at the details, and I'll, I'll give you my best understanding of a few things, while also acknowledging that there are like, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who understand certain things in here differently than I do, and differently probably than you do. I'll try to lay out a few of those different viewpoints a little bit. I'll take a little bit of time looking at the trees because they're interesting and because I'm sure some of you want to know what some of them may mean. And if I think if we skip them all together, I won't be being faithful to the text. But then after we walk through the passage and look at the details a little bit, I want to zoom out for most of our time and spend just looking at the forest. I want to camp out on this main idea that redemption is coming. I want that message of redemption that is coming to give us hope and to give us boldness and to give us encouragement. I want to camp out there and think through the ramifications of that truth. I want to think through how it should impact our lives if it's true that redemption is coming. So my hope is that at the end of today, at the end of the sermon, as you leave here, you leave with a better picture of the forest, if not a complete understanding of each individual tree. That's where we're headed. With that in mind, let's let's look at our passage together. We're in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 5. We'll go through verse 28. This passage is often called the Olivet Discourse. It's also found in, in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because in Matthew, Matthew makes clear that it takes place on the Mount of Olives, right after Jesus and his 
disciples have left the temple. In fact, in Matthew, it's, it's the last time in his life that Jesus ever leaves the temple. I think that's significant. Just keep that in mind. In Matthew, Jesus speaks the word we're about to read right after he, right, the Son of God, the perfect image of God, the exact likeness of God's being. Right after Jesus, who was God in flesh, has left the temple for the final time in his earthly life. We'll come back and talk more about that a little bit later, but just keep it in mind for now, because it's important that Jesus leaves the temple for the last time and then says these words. So Luke, unlike Matthew, doesn't tell us where this discussion takes place, but he does make it clear, starting in verse 5, that he's talking about the temple. Right, so verse 5 says this. Some of his disciples were remarking on how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. Right, so the, the disciples are marveling at the beauty of the temple. And the temple at that time truly was like an astounding piece of construction. Several authors note that if it were not for the fact that the temple was built in Israel by Jews who were kind of outcasts in the ancient world, it surely would have been considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. The perimeter of the temple alone was nearly a mile long, and everything was covered in gold. So much that the historian Josephus, who writes at this time period, wrote this. When the sun was shining on the temple, it glittered so dazzlingly that it blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed at the sun's rays themselves. So Herod the Great had begun kind of this great refurbishment project of the temple, started it in, in 20 B.C. And that project would last until 6480, right? So an 84-year kind of refurbishment project. And in Jesus' day, it's well underway. Right? It's 50 years into this 80-year project. And the temple, which is truly magnificent, it was massive and it was grand and wonderful and just magnificent, so much so that it had to feel truly permanent. Like people back then knew how to build stuff that lasted for thousands of years. Like surely this would be one of those things. But Jesus said that's not the case. In verse 6, he says this. As far as what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. So Jesus here prophesied that the temple will be completely destroyed. That not one stone will be left on top of another. It will be utterly wiped out. And that must have seemed absurd to the disciples. How could something this grand, something so massive and marvelous, how could it possibly be so utterly destroyed? The closest comparison I could think of was if you went back to like 1973 and you were present for the grand opening of the World Trade Center towers. And when they were unveiled at that point, they were the tallest buildings in the world. And if at that moment, at the grand opening, you had told someone that, hey, in 30 years, these buildings won't be here anymore. They'll be totally destroyed. You would have looked up at the massive, shining, brand new towers and thought, like, there's no way that's true. These are marvels of modern engineering. How could they possibly not be here in 30 years? 
And of course, we know what happened in the World Trade Centers, and Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple likewise comes true. In 66 AD, the Jewish population rebels against Roman occupation, and it triggers a war that culminates in, in Rome under the command of a man named Titus laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. And ultimately in 70 AD, the Romans would come in and they would take the city of Jerusalem and they would destroy and plunder the temple. They would carry off much of the temple's wealth back to Rome. If you visit Rome today, one of the most popular tourist attractions in Rome is the ruins of the Colosseum. The construction of the Colosseum started in 72 AD, so two years after the temple was destroyed and plundered. And the closest of those two dates is not a coincidence. Because Rome used the funds they gained from plundering the temple in Jerusalem to fund the construction of the Colosseum. In addition to, to plundering and destroying the temple, there was also a, a terrible human cost to Rome's Rome defeat of Jerusalem. I don't want to dwell on it too long, because it's tragic and a little bit hard to swallow, but in order to make sense of what Jesus is going to say coming up, we need to understand a little bit of what went on in Jerusalem during this time period. So Jerusalem sits kind of on top of a hill on a, a mountain, and it's a walled city. So it's a well-defended, easy-to-defend city. And so instead of attacking the city directly, Titus, who's commanding Rome's armies, decides to just lay siege to Jerusalem. He's just going to make it so that no one can get in, no one can get out. More importantly, no food or fresh water can get in or out. The city can't be resupplied from the outside. So people become hungry, right? The goal is to starve people in the city until they just give up and surrender. And that's ultimately what happens. Right? The conditions in, in the city of Jerusalem during the siege are, are miserable. People are starving. They're resorting to desperate measures to find food to eat. And eventually they start to starve and they're too weak to defend themselves. And so Rome attacks and Rome comes into the city and they show very little mercy. According to one account, they were they were crucifying so many people in the city of Jerusalem that they ran out of wood to crucify people on. The historian Josephus reports that 1.1 million Jews were killed in Jerusalem as part of this attack, with another 100,000 or so enslaved. The point being, to live in Jerusalem at this point in history would be to experience and suffer through and endure event that would feel entirely cataclysmic. Basically, like Jerusalem in 70 AD is one of the worst places you could possibly live in all of human history. So here, Jesus is prophesying this, and and naturally, the disciples have some questions. In verse 7, they ask, Teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? And it's worth noting that in the same passage in Matthew, the questions that Matthew records are, are slightly different. In Matthew, the disciples ask this. They say, tell us, when will this happen? 
That's pretty similar. And then they also ask, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? There's two questions. When and what will be the signs of your coming at the end of the age? There are a couple of things we need to notice about, about these questions that the disciples ask in, in Matthew. One is that like, when they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? We, at least those of us who grew up in church and kind of heard things about the end times, we tend to automatically interpret this as having to do with Jesus' second coming. But the disciples at this point in history like, have no category for a second coming of Jesus. What they're wondering if they ask that question is, Jesus, when are you going to reveal yourself as the great conquering military Messiah that we expect? When are you going to perform some grand act that will display to everyone that you are indeed the Messiah? Like, you're right here, Jesus. Like, when are you going to do your act that's going to show everyone that you are the Messiah? And that's what they're asking there. Not when you're going to come a second time in history, but when are you going to do your thing now? The other thing to note here is that they assume that, that these two events, right, the destruction of the temple and the unveiling of the conquering, victorious Messiah, the assumption that the disciples had was that those two events would be simultaneous. Right? They'd be at the same time. But Jesus' answer makes it clear that if there is a, a separation in time between the fulfillment of the destruction of the temple and the victorious coming of the Messiah that ushered in the end of the age. There's a a gap between those two things happening. And what makes this passage tricky to interpret is that that it's clear that some parts of the passage are referring to the answer to the first question, the destruction of Jerusalem, and other parts are referring to the second question, the, the coming of the Messiah at the end of the age. But faithful and Bible-believing and Jesus-loving people don't always agree on exactly where the line is between what's referring to the first question and what's referring to the second question. And you'll see that as we take a closer look at what Jesus says in response to these questions. So in verse 8, Jesus replies to the disciple question by saying this, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. And it's passages like this that can lead people to think that Jesus is talking about our day and time. It's really easy to look and, at that passage and say, like, look, look at Ukraine, like, that's war, and, and look at the famine affecting Somalia right now, like, there's famines and pestilences in various places, like, do we not just go through a global pandemic. Every time you hear about a recent earthquake or a natural or a weather disaster, it's easy to have this passage pop into your head and wonder, like, are we right now in the end times? And according to a recent survey by Pew Research, 
4 in 10 Americans believe that we are now living in the end times, right? that the end will come soon. And that's not just evangelical Christians. Right? That's all Americans. But my understanding of what these verses are meant to tell us, right? what Jesus means by these verses, right? that everything we just read happens before the fall of Jerusalem in, in 70 A.D., the fact of the matter is that wars and disease and famine have all happened all throughout human history. Yeah, sometimes there are more extreme cases than others, but, but these things have happened all throughout human history. That has led people all through human history to believe they were living in the end times. And that certainly doesn't definitively mean that we're not now living in the end times. Like, Jesus could indeed return tomorrow. But it does mean that I don't think, like, or I think, like, our, our time in history right, is perhaps not quite as unique as our recency bias would maybe lead us to believe. And I think that, that these verses in particular refer to events that happened leading up to the destruction of the temple and not leading up to Jesus' second coming. And I think that because the direct question that Jesus is answering is, when will these things happen? And what will be the signs that they are about to take place? And, and the these things and the they that the disciples are asking about is Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. There's been nothing stated in Luke yet that would encourage you to think that Jesus is referring to anything beyond the destruction of the temple. Jesus continues to talk about these things that will take place leading up to the destruction of the temple in verse 12. Verse 12, he says this. But before all this, they will seize you, persecute you, they will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. So you will bear testimony to me, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you word and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will, be, will perish. Stand firm and you will win your life. At first glance, it's a little bit hard to reconcile verse 16 with verses 18 and 19. In verse 16, Jesus says, they will put some of you to death. And then in verse 18, he says, not a hair on your head will perish. And in verse 19, he says, stand firm and you will win your life. So how can both of those things be simultaneously true? How can some of you be put to death, but you can stand firm and you will win your life? I think the, the implication here is that though some of Jesus' followers will indeed be put to death, they will lose their earthly life. But verses 18 and 19 promise is that by standing firm, by persevering under persecution, followers of Jesus will never lose their spiritual, their eternal life. It's reminiscent of Luke 17, 33, when Jesus says, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life 
we'll preserve it. So the big takeaway here, that no matter how many trials we may face, no matter how hard life gets, we can be confident that God is still at work, that His promises are still good, that God keeps His promises, so we can stand firm in the face of all of life's trials, confident that God is still at work to bring us to eternal life. Life was going to be hard for many of Jesus' disciples between the time of Jesus' resurrection and the time that Jerusalem was defeated by the Romans. Almost all of Jesus' apostles are killed during that window. Many other disciples were killed during that time period. And yet Jesus calls them to stand firm in the face of those challenges. The same thing is true for each of us. Life is hard at times. Life is full of challenges and trials and tribulations as we wait for Jesus to return to set all things right. But even in the midst of those trials and challenges, we can stand firm, confident that not a hair on our head will perish, that our eternal life is assured. That assurance will be incredibly important for the disciples of Jesus who are in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Because as we said earlier, that's a terrible, horrible place to be. And Jesus describes some of what it will be like to be in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., starting in verse 20. He says this, When you see Jerusalem, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is drawing near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoner to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And verse 22 is it's really important here. And Jesus says in verse 22 that the, this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. And it's really easy to read this section of the destruction of Jerusalem and think, wow, like, God seems to be losing to the Romans. God's holy city is being destroyed by the pagans. Surely if God could stop this, he would. And since he's not stopping it, that must mean that God is unable to stand against the Roman army. But verse 22 makes it clear that that's not the case. Instead, what verse 22 tells us is that what happens in 70 A.D. is the fulfillment of all that God promised would happen to Jerusalem if the people there didn't obey Him. And it's a repeat performance of what happened when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the first temple for the people of disobedience. And right before the Babylonians came in and destroyed that first temple, 
The prophet Ezekiel had a vision of of God's glory leaving the temple. God's glory leaves the temple and the Babylonians come in and they destroy the temple because the temple is no longer the place where God is going to meet with his people. That's why I think it's incredibly significant that these events take place after Jesus, who is God in the flesh, leaves the temple for the last time. The temple is, once again, no longer the place where God is going to meet with his people. Instead, it's now through Jesus that God meets with his people, that they place their faith in Jesus and they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God lives in them, not in the temple. Paul tells us that because we have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit lives in us through our faith in Jesus, that we ourselves are now the temple of God. Jesus has left this temple. It's no longer the place where God meets with his people. That's why when we read in Revelation 21, that when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, there is no temple in it. That must have seemed so strange, right? The temple was at the center of all of life in Jerusalem. But when God remakes and renews and redeems Jerusalem... He brings about the new Jerusalem. There is no temple. Because Jesus has become the epicenter of true worship and faith. Not the temple. It's not the sacrifices that take place in the temple that take away our sin and make us right with God. It is Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that makes it possible for us to be washed of our sins. It is through faith in Jesus and his sinless life and death and resurrection that we can be forgiven by God. And if by trusting in Jesus that we can look forward to eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem without a temple, but where we will gather around the throne of God and worship him there for all time. Jesus has become the center of worship and faith, not the temple. And verses 25 through 28 make it clear that that day when the new Jerusalem comes down is indeed coming. Verse 25 says, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and stars. On earth, nations, there will be an anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Again, this is another place where where faithful Christians can disagree. There are some who who say that even these events were fulfilled in, in 70 A.D., this is hyperbolic language for an event that happened back then. But to me, it seems like these verses are, are clearly referring to the end of history when Jesus will return. In particular, verse 27 says, You will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That seems to be a clear indication that he's talking about the end of history when Jesus will return. 
That, that's the great hope of this passage, right? That's the great hope that of verse 28 says, like your redemption is drawing near. Redemption is indeed coming. That's the hope that this passage offers. That in the midst of all the trials that the people in Jerusalem faced in 70 AD and all the trials we face today, we have hope that redemption is still coming. I think there's, there's two ways we should respond to that message. That Jesus is coming back. The first is that we, we must be ready. Way back in, in Luke chapter 12, probably like a year ago we went through that passage, but way back then, in verse 40, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, You must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus is coming back. He will one day return. We don't know when that will be. Right? No one knows that anyone who claims to know is lying, and we must be ready. The first step to being ready is trusting Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he returns to judge the world. And so for those who have placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they will spend eternity with him in the new heavens and the new earth. But for those who have not trusted Jesus, they will spend eternity in torment. And after Jesus returns, it is too late to change your mind. So the first step in being ready for his return is to trust him now. If you've never trusted Jesus, you've never asked for forgiveness of your sins, you never believe that his death on the cross makes your forgiveness possible, I'd urge you to do that today. Pray, tell him you believe in him, ask for forgiveness of your sins. Like, that's the first step to being ready. The second step to being ready is then for us who have trusted him to live the life that he has called us to live while we wait for him to return. And part of that means living in holy, living holy lives. Next week we'll look at Luke 21, verse 34. And Jesus says this, Be careful or your heart shall be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. To live holy lives, don't be weighed down by drunkenness and anxieties of life and carousing. We are called to live holy, God-honoring lives while we wait for redemption to come, for Jesus to come back again. That's one part of what it means for us to live lives while we wait and are ready. The second part, to live lives on the mission that God has called us to be on. That we are called to live out the mission that God has given us. That some of the final words of Jesus in the book of Luke are him giving his disciples, which includes us, a mission to live out while they wait for his return. He tells us we are to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. That we are to be witnesses of all the things that Jesus has done. So while we wait for Jesus to return, while we wait for redemption to be fully realized, we are called to live out that mission, going to our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers, 
Maybe going across the world to tell people about Jesus, to invite them to repent and have their sins forgiven. To encourage them to trust in Jesus. We are to be witnesses of what Jesus has done. We are to live a life on mission while we wait for redemption to come. The second thing that this message that redemption is coming should do for us is it should cause us to live with confidence. If you look through Luke 21, you see these commands over and over again that encourage us to live confidently. Verse 9, we're told, do not be frightened. Verse 14, make up your mind not to worry. Verse 19, stand firm. Verse 28, stand up, lift up your heads. We're able to stand firm, stand confident in the face of trials and difficulties and hardship because we know that redemption is coming. It doesn't mean that facing any of those things is easy or painless. But we're able to face them knowing that Jesus is coming back and He is redeeming all the pain and suffering that we face. That He is making all things new. He will one day wipe away every tear, ushering in an age when there is no more pain or suffering or death. So looking forward to that day allows us to live confidently in the face of the trials of today. So that's the forest. That's the, the big picture that Jesus is coming back. Jesus will one day set all things right the exact timing is unknown. All the events leading up to it are unknown. But Jesus is coming back. So while we wait for His return, we are to live on mission and to live with confidence. Let's pray. Father, we Thank you for the hope that is found in the fact that Jesus is coming back. That he is returning. That this life is not the end. That this broken, fallen world is not the end. That we can look forward to eternal life with you in a new and a perfect new heavens and a new earth. Father, while we wait for redemption to come, for redemption to draw near, while we wait for Jesus' return, would we live with a burning desire to see your kingdom advance, to tell other people about the hope that is found in Jesus? Would we live confidently unafraid of the challenges that this world has to offer. Where we find great hope and we trust in you and your promises. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The way to kind of affirm the first time, we're going to sing one more song. Right when Pastor Tim told me what he was, the, the forest and the trees that he was going to preach on,
A song came to my mind that was new and popular when Doug and I were in grade school. So I hope a lot of you guys know it. Those of you who are young and don't know it, watch the old folks having fun. But stand with us and let's sing a song celebrating the fact that Jesus is coming again. downstairs for coffee and treats and come fellowship and then we stick around for, for Sunday school. But as you go from here today, would you go rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is coming again? And while we wait, would you wait living holy lives, living lives that are on mission and lives that are confident that he will one day come again? You are dismissed.